When I was 15, 14, 15 years old, um, I decided summer between school years uh, that I wanted to go visit my Uncle Tim and my Aunt Judith. My Uncle Tim lived uh, in Fort Worth. He was studying at Southwestern Seminary to go into the ministry. I had no thought of going into the ministry myself. That's not why I wanted to go. I'd grown up kind of admiring Tim and just thought this would be a fun way to spend a week during the summertime. My parents actually put me on a Greyhound bus. 14, 15 years old, I'd never really been away from them by myself in my life. And so that was a big adventure to travel this Greyhound bus, took about half the day to get there. Um, I spent the week with my aunt and uncle and their friends. So all these people in their early 20s who were studying for the ministry. And I had such a good time. I remember one day they took us out to the park and they all, they took turns throwing me passes. I would just run as far as I could and they would lob that ball as far as they could. And I'd run back and then do all over again because that's what it's like to be 14 or 15 year old and a boy, right? Uh, another day we went to Possum Kingdom Lake. Anybody who's from the Dallas area knows about that and went swimming uh, about middle of the week, uh, Tim and Judith, because they didn't really have any money. They're like, okay, Jeff, we can't do anything else. <laughs> We're just gonna have to sit. Uh, but I enjoyed being with them. We went to their church that Sunday, uh, Travis Avenue Baptist. Joel Gregory was the preacher then and, and was fantastic. I remember on my way home on that same Greyhound bus, thinking to myself, when I get out on my own, and start life on my own in college or whatever happens after I move away from the house. I wanna be around people like them. Because everybody I knew went to church somewhere in my little hometown, but nobody I knew who was my age was serious about their faith. Lived out their faith in a way that really changed the way they live. Everybody who was like that that I knew was my parents' age or my grandparents' age. These were people who were just a little bit older than me and they were on fire for Christ and it showed in everything they did and they were full of joy and they were full of uh, just, just a, a, such a compelling life that I thought, I wanna be around that kind of person. And so when I got, went off to college, before classes even started at U of H, I found the Baptist Student Union. Uh, it's called BSM today, Baptist Student Union back then and they were having a welcome weekend. I got involved there. I ran into people, I met people, became friends with them who I'm still friends with today who were serious about their faith it changed me, it helped me to grow. And then in spring of that first freshman year, I met a young woman named Carrie Thacker who was unfortunately dating somebody else. Um, nobody really knows what happened to that guy. It's a real shame. <laughs> I outweighed him actually. And uh, so today is our 29th wedding anniversary. So uh, <laughs> I say all that to say this, our purpose as a church and I hope you understand this by now. Our purpose as a church is not, we're gonna have really great music and a really nice building and great preaching and great programs. And so lost people are gonna come here and get saved because that doesn't work. If it ever worked, it doesn't work now. Our job instead is to equip you to engage in transforming relationships with people, some of them in this church, many of them out there in the world that'll look like what my Uncle Tim did for me. Inspiring, drawing, influencing, and so drawing, I mean, he changed my life. Just his influence on my life was life-changing. And I hope that your transforming relationships go beyond just your family. I hope that it's mentoring a kid in a local school or adopting a teacher over at Sam Houston Elementary or at a school close to you. Um, maybe somebody that you work with is not a believer and you think, okay, Lord, I don't know how to do this, but give me the words 
Uh, give me an opportunity and give me the words to speak to them about you. Maybe you're in school now and there's a kid in school who's going through a rough time, either because of some circumstance in their life or they're just an awkward person. And you say, I'm going to be somebody who shows them the love of Christ. Lord, show me how to show them the love of Christ. Maybe you've got an elderly neighbor that you don't see anybody taking care of and you decide to go over there and check up on them every, every so often and make sure that they know that they're loved. It can look a thousand different ways, but here's, here's my request for you. Two things. Number one, that, that you pray that God shows you who you should have a transforming relationship with. Because there's somebody in your life right now that God wants you to reach out to, to invest in, to influence for him. And the second thing I wanna pray, I, I, I'm requesting of you is that you tell us about it. Outside this door and to the right, there are cards on a table under a big TV screen that talks about transforming relationships. And those cards give you an opportunity to say, here's the person that I'm trying to invest in. Don't wait until you can say, okay, I know I've done it, I just wanna know that you're trying. That helps us to know that we're getting closer to our goal of 10,000 transforming relationships by 2030. More importantly, gives us the chance to pray for you and that relationship. Uh, there's another way you can do it every day if you get our daily emails. The devotionals I write down at the bottom, there's a link you can click on and you'll fill out a form online that says, this is my transforming relationship. So I hope you'll be involved in the, one of those. That's our purpose as a church. That's how God's gonna use us to reach our community for him. Now, the opposite of a transforming relationship, I guess you could say a, a, a relationship that's transforming in the wrong way is when Christians like you and me backslide and we do and say things and behave in ways that don't draw people to him, but push him away. I think you talk to most of the people today who grew up in church and are no longer going to church, they can tell you a story, at least one story of some hypocritical Christian they've met, some Christian who walked, who, who talked the talk but didn't walk the walk or who burned them in some way, judgmentalism or hatefulness. Um, so many people are, are driven away from the gospel by believers who don't live it out. And I think most, if not all of those believers start off with sincere hearts wanting to do right. So where does this come from? If we're truly saved, if we're truly born again, how can we ever commit such terrible sins? How can we ever live in such a way that we push people away from Christ? I wanna ask you a question. I'm taking a little survey. I want you to raise your hand if someone you love loves Hallmark movies. Okay? Yeah, pretty good number, right? All right, so here's the thing. Here's the thing I've decided. I think I went into the wrong business because if I wanted to make money, I would write scripts for Hallmark because any one of us in this room could write these scripts, right? Right? So you got, you got your cute little brown-eyed architect who's cynical. She's a big city girl. She goes to the small town. She's been hired by the local school board to build a new building. And the, the building contractor um, has broad shoulders and a five o'clock shadow and these flannel shirts, drives a pickup truck. She hates his guts. He's a stinking pig. They're going to fall in love. I mean, that's, there you go. There's your Hallmark movie. Now, now, let me just say, are they cheesy? Are they corny? Are they predictable? Yes, but they're not bad. You, you watch TV enough, you see a lot of bad stuff, a lot of stuff that is toxic to the soul. Hallmark movies are not in that category, okay? I'm not into them. My wife doesn't watch them a lot, but when she does, I sit there and I think, you know, it's an ugly world out there. If your way of escaping is to sit and watch a very predictable, very sweet, very uplifting story that you know how it's going to end and it makes your life easier, you've got my blessing as a pastor. 
On the other hand, if you're watching The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, you need to repent right now because that stuff's hot garbage. And you know I'm right. But here's the thing about, the, here's, here's the thing about Hallmark movies. That's all you're going to be talking about, right? Hallmark movies didn't invent the idea of two people meeting and falling in love and they'll live happily ever after. That was going on. I mean, think about three centuries ago, a certain minister's daughter named Jane Austen was writing books about this kind of thing and making good money out of it, becoming very famous at it. Way before that, there were people making up stories that had become what we call fairy tales. You know, the beautiful mermaid falls in love with the handsome sailor. The, the dashing prince goes throughout his land with a... With a uh, a glass slipper in his hand looking for his one true love who got away. And those are great stories. Even as a red-blooded American male who loves football, I can say I like stories like that. I like to see people fall in love. But the problem is those stories always end too soon. They always end at, and they lived happily ever after. They never tell you how they got to happily ever after. Because let's face it, falling in love is the easy part. Any idiot can do it. Idiots do it all the time. Now, the hard part is building something, building a relationship, building a marriage. This is not a sermon about marriage, but you you think about it. um, Why don't we hear the story about what happens when Prince Charming has ear hair and love handles and, uh, you know, Cinderella's still wearing the same sweatpants for three weeks in a row and, you know, she's got her hair in curlers all the time and, and, you know, one of the kids has flushed the glass slipper down the toilet and it's clogged. You know, what, what, when do we get that story? How do we know how hard it is to build something? Because those stories don't tell us. And the reason I say that is we in the church have done a disservice to Christians. All my life, I've been in Baptist churches, other evangelical churches, I think are the same, where the emphasis is on walk the aisle, pray the prayer, ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Make Jesus the Lord of your life. Get saved. And I'm glad that was emphasized. I'm glad every Sunday we were invited to give our hearts to Jesus because when I was nine, I did that and it really happened. But nobody told me that that was the beginning of the journey. Nobody told me that life after that got harder because any idiot can get saved. It's free, but it's hard to follow Jesus. It's what happens after your baptism that's the hard part because There are all these forces trying to steer you away from him, all these voices speaking to your mind. And we're going to talk about two of those voices today and leading you away from him. They can't steal you from uh, from his family. No one can snatch you out of the hand of God, but they can lure you into making mistakes and going down paths that end up in hurting people around you and driving others away from the faith and doing irreparable damage to your earthly life. And there are people, if, if we sent a microphone around this room, who would stand up and say, yeah, I got saved when I was this age, and then at this age, I did this thing that I've regretted the rest of my life. There's this line from one of our most beloved hymns. It says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Why are we like that? We're gonna talk about that today. Last week, we saw the miracle of the Red Sea, one of the greatest miracles that's ever happened on the face of the earth, certainly the, the most amazing thing any of those people ever saw, hundreds of thousands of witnesses. And of those people, only two made it to the promised land. You look at a map and you see they could have walked that distance in a few weeks. And yet 40 years passed and all but two died in the desert. Why? 
They turned back because of what we're going to look at today. What happens today, what we look at today in chapter 16 and 7, isn't going to sound all that dramatic, but it's the beginning of their backsliding. And this is why this story gets told and retold four different times in the Bible. We're going to look at all four. But let's look at the original story first. Chapter 16, verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat next to meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Now time out. If you've been with us through this series or if you know the story of Exodus, do you think they're telling an accurate uh, portrayal of what life was like for them in Egypt? No, not at all. They're making it sound like they were on a, on a cruise to the Bahamas with a 24-hour buffet. They were living in a country where the people there made them slaves with the goal of, of literally working them to death. So how could there be this cognitive dissonance, this disparity between what was real and what had actually happened? We're going to give a name to this kind of thinking in just a moment. Just, but right now, just ask yourself the question, when I grumble and complain, do I sound this ridiculous? And my answer as your pastor is, yes, you do. Yes, you do. And yes, I do. Verse four, then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So what happens is the Israelites wake up the next day and they look out, when they walk outside their tents, they look down and there's this white flaky substance all over the ground as far as the eye can see. And they say, what the heck is this stuff? And that becomes its name because the Hebrew word for what the heck is this is manna. Only slight paraphrase, but you know, what is what is manna in Hebrew? And Moses says, this is what God promised. You take this, you grind it into flour, you bake it into bread and you can eat it. When you need meat, God will give you quail. We're going to have everything we need. By the way, the book of Exodus tells us that the bread made from manna tasted like it was made with honey, which I find fascinating. You know, God was giving them the good stuff. He didn't say, okay, you can have the gluten-free bread. <laughs> you know, you can have the ultra whole wheat, right? No, you, he gives them good stuff. But there are rules. He says, don't gather them on the Sabbath day. And he says, don't gather more than you need on for one day's meal, for one day's eating for your family. So what he's doing here in verse four, it says he's testing them. He says, I'm giving them this bread that I may test them. Now we think test and we think of your math teacher gives you 15 algebra problems to see if you know that week's lesson. And that's one way the Hebrew word test can be used. But in Hebrew, that word has a different nuance than in English. In Hebrew, it can also mean, I'm trying to teach you something. I'm trying to train you in a particular direction. And that's what he means here when he says to test you. Because think about it. God knew what was in the hearts of the Israelites. He didn't have to see what they did with the, with the manna to know whether they were going to be faithful or not. He's trying to train them. So before we get to chapter 17, I want to I show you the two things he's trying to train them for. This is important because he's still trying to train you and I on these two things as well. Number one is... He's trying to teach them daily dependence on him. That's why he says, only collect what you need for the day. Because he wants them to trust 
that tomorrow there's gonna be the same amount waiting for them on the ground. See, what, he, what he's worried about, what he doesn't want them to do, God doesn't worry, but what God doesn't want them to do is say, I'm gonna go out and hoard as much manna as I can. And then later on when there's a pandemic, I'm gonna hoard toilet paper, right? And <laughs> bottle water and, and you know, hand sanitizer. No, he says, trust me. Trust me, you don't, have to, you don't have to hoard a bunch because tomorrow it's gonna be here just the same. You have to learn to depend on me. And do they listen? No. Some of them go out and grab two or three days worth and the next day it's all maggoty and rotten because God says, no, you trust in me. And we have a hard time with that. See, this is the way we are. Imagine you've moved to a new city and you meet a new person. You become friends with this person. And you're saying to them one day, I've got an appointment downtown. I've never really been there. Do you know how to get there? And they look at the map and they say, oh yeah, I know exactly how to get there. Um, let, me, let me go with you tomorrow. Tell you what, I'll be at your house a half hour ahead of time. We'll get there in plenty of time. I'll sit, wait with you through the appointment when it's over. I know a great barbecue place down there. We can get lunch and then we'll ride home together. This way we'll get to know each other better. Now imagine that you say, hmm, just write down the instructions for me. Now, what is your friend going to think? Your friend is going to think exactly the same thing that God thinks, which is, this person doesn't want a relationship with me. They just want to use me. Can, can we be honest and say that a lot of Christians just want God to be a consultant? I, I just want God to show up when I need him. You know, when I'm, when I'm here and I want to get there, I want God to come and show me how to get there because he knows and I don't. So Lord, come when I call you and get me from here to there. And God's like, no, you don't understand. That's not the way I work. I made you and I made the whole world and I know where you are and I know not just where you want to get to, but where you need to be. So let me walk with you. And along the way, you'll get to know me, which is the whole point of life. And I'll make sure you get to the place where I created you to go. And we're like, eh, just write it down for me. Just tell me how to get there. God wants us to be dependent on him. The second thing he's trying to train into the Israelites is conscious imitation of him. Remember, he said, on the sixth day, gather twice as much as you need because there's not gonna be any left on the seventh. On the seventh, I'm not gonna rain any manna. That's the Sabbath. And this is something that... The, came before there was a commandment. Remember, we haven't gotten to the 10 commandments yet. That's next week in chapter 20. Before there was ever a written commandment about this, back in the very first chapter of the Bible, it says that God created the world in six days and on the seventh day he rested. A quick question for you. Do you think God rested because he was tired? Of course not. God's never been tired in his life. Jesus has been tired because he had a human body, but God the Father has never been tired. He didn't rest because he was tired. For that matter, he didn't take six days to create the world because it was so hard for him. He could have just said, okay, be, and it would be here. Why did God do that? Because he was setting a pattern for us. Because he was saying, here's how I want you to live. I want you to work hard. But then on that seventh day, I want you to rest. I want you to realize that your body, your mind, your soul, the animals you work with, the people you work alongside, everything needs to rest. Everything needs to be refreshed. So take a break. And this isn't just about the Sabbath. God is saying, you see what I did in creation? I'm training you to do the same. I want you to learn to be like me. And that makes God different from all other gods. I mean, back in the ancient world, no Egyptian went around saying, my goal is to be just like Ra, the God of the sun. No, no Canaanite said, I want to be just like Baal or Asherah or Molech. In Jesus' day, no Greek said, I want to be just like Zeus. 
And today, no, no Muslim says, I want to be just like Allah. They would, they would think that was blasphemy even to say. And yet, our God says, be righteous as I am righteous. Love as I first loved you. We are supposed to become like him. Not gods ourselves. That's not, we're not Mormons. No. But in, in the gospel, we, we take on the, the character of God. His love, his virtue, his righteousness, his, his courage, his strength. So how did the Israelites do in their training? Not good. Sabbath day shows up. They go out looking for more manna as if they hadn't heard. And yet God continues to be merciful. And then things get even worse. Chapter 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Now you need to understand, stoning wasn't an act of passion. When Moses killed the Egyptian when he was 40, that was a crime of passion. He got angry at what he saw. He attacked him. He killed him somehow, beat him to death with his bare hands. This is an execution. This is the people saying, because that's what, you, that's what stoning meant. It meant we the people have decided that you are worthy to die. You have committed a crime worthy of execution. In Moses' case, it was you took us from a place where we had enough to a place we don't have enough. You were trying to kill us. Therefore, we need to execute you. Now, how could they get there? How could they come to think that about someone who had at 80 years old, had left his uh, very safe life to come and identify with them and lead them to freedom. And every promise he'd made had been fulfilled. How could they do this? How could they backslide in this way? Well, there are two things I want, there were two voices speaking to them that I want to show you. Note the language they used in, verse, in chapter 16 when they said, we had it better in Egypt. That's the language of addiction. When you look back at a situation that was killing you and you say, yeah, but I was happier then. When you look back at a, at a time, at an activity that was destroying your soul, that was hurting everyone around you and you say, yeah, but it's not really so bad. That's the language of addiction. And then there's the language of entitlement in chapter 17 when they say, give us water. And they're speaking to Moses and they're speaking to his God. They're speaking to their salvation. And they're saying, we don't have enough. You're not giving us what we deserve. That's the language of entitlement. The language that says, I deserve more. Now let's talk about those two. Because I think this is, this is where you understand where backsliding comes from. First of all, that language of addiction. Hear it in your heart. Know that it, it is in you. And you, it speaks to you. I remember when I was around 29 years old, I'd only been a pastor for a few years, I found out that a member of my church was cheating on his wife. His wife called me and said, I don't know where my husband is. He hasn't come home. I've called his office. They don't know where he is. I think he's with somebody else. And about a week later, he came into my office and he told me that it was true. This was somebody I knew. This was a guy I'd played basketball with and we'd worked together with RAs, the little boys group at our church. Really good guy. 
I could still say, really good guy. And I could look at him and see he was miserable. He was in the pit of hell, right? He hated what he had done. It was not something he intended. It was a a woman at work, younger than him, looked up at him with starry eyes like he was a hero. That's very hard for a man to resist if his heart isn't in the right place. And he loved his wife. He loved his kids. He didn't want to lose them. He was devastated at what he'd done. He would rather have died than do what he did. And yet, when I said to him, so have you broken this off yet? And he said, well, not yet. And I said, well, let's do it. I mean, here's the phone. You tell me the number. I'll dial it in. And I will be your witness as you sit here and you tell this woman that you'll never see her again. He said, yeah, I know I need to do that, but I want to do that on my own, okay? And like a fool, I believed him. Like a fool, I watched him walk out of the office and I thought to myself that I had done a good thing as a pastor. And I am thankful to be able to say that somehow against all the odds, their marriage survived. I mean, he did eventually break it off. They did reconcile. As far as I know, they're still married to this day. But he dragged that family through weeks more of pain and torment because he was telling himself, I can do this. This isn't so bad. I can, I can manage this. And I remember at the time thinking, and I don't have any psychological training, and I certainly didn't know what I was talking about back then, but I remember thinking, he's acting just like an alcoholic who says, I know, I know I need to quit drinking, and I will. Just, just leave me alone, okay? Stop bugging me about it. Just get off my back. I'll stop. I'll stop. You trust me. And they never do. And anyone who knows physiology would probably say, well, Jeff, it's not the same thing if you're, if you're addicted to cocaine or heroin or methamphetamines or fentanyl or alcohol. There's a chemical thing that happens in your body where you literally crave that and you need it and, and to get off of it is, is hard. And that doesn't happen with sins like lust or gossip or anger or pride. And I get that. Here's the, here's the link I'm making. Sin is addictive in this sense. Whatever your pet sin is, and you have a pet sin, because we all do, some little sin that you think isn't so bad, whatever your pet sin is, you tell yourself lies to protect it. You get mad when people confront you about it. How how dare you talk to me and tell me I need to change? Have you seen the kinds of things you do? I would never do the kinds of things you do. How, How can you talk to me about I need to change? We tell ourselves lies about, well, this isn't so bad. You know, I... It's really only hurting me and not even hurting me that much. It's the language of addiction. Learn to recognize the language of addiction. There's a a quote someone uh, I read several times from several different authors. I don't know who originally came up with it, but I love it. It says this, sin will always take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Let me say that again. Sin will always take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Whatever your pet sin is, that's true of that pet sin as well, that you think is no big deal, that you think you've got a handle on. Bring it out into the light today. Confess it before God. Get it right before Him, before it hurts anybody else, before it drags you further away from His plan for your life recognize the language of addiction. Second voice that you need to hear is the voice of entitlement. See, around that same time in my life, late 20s, 
I found out that another friend had stumbled. This was even more shocking to me because this was a guy who was not my age, but the age of my parents. This was a guy in ministry. In fact, when I had first become a pastor, he was the one who really invested in me and poured his life into me and and, and took me under his wing, taught me things. He was the guy who, as a young pastor, when I didn't know what to do, when something was happening in the church and I was like, I don't know how to handle this, I would go to him and he'd give me sound advice. He put a lot of time into me. I owe him a lot, him and his wife both. And then I found out that he had been embezzling from the ministry that he led, stealing money. And he, he, his explanation was, when my wife and I were first married, we inherited a bunch of money. And that enabled us to live a different kind of lifestyle than my salary would have provided. We were able to buy a better breed of car and, and eat nicer food and entertain in a more lavish way and, and wear nicer clothes. And we got used to that lifestyle. And then when that money dribbled away, as inevitably it did, well, we didn't immediately transition back to living like someone on a ministry salary. And so we got into debt. And so there were troubles where we needed to pay this bill or that bill. And so we would tell ourselves, you know, I can, I can just take a little money out of the ministry and I'll pay it back when I'm back on my feet. And a little bit became a lot and a lot more. And over time, it just compounded. And now he stood before these people and said, I've done this. And the crime of it is, the heartbreaking thing about it is, I mean, this is a guy who did so much for me. And I think about, I mean, that was, that was over 20 years ago. That's over 20 years that the kingdom of God, that churches, that pastors didn't have him to pour into them because the voice of entitlement spoke and he listened. And that same voice is inside you. And it's speaking. If, you're, if you have ears to hear, it's speaking and it's drawing you aside. If you're a teenager, you want to know what that voice sounds like? The voice of entitlement sounds like a voice that says, you know, all the other kids are having more fun than you are because you follow the rules and they don't. And if you would just ignore the rules once or twice and do what they're doing, you'll have more fun. And by the way, man, you better have fun because once you graduate high school, it's no fun at all. And that's a lie, but you hear that voice over and over again. And then you get to be a young adult and it changes just a little bit and it becomes, you're only young once and you've got hopes and dreams and desires and goals. Chase after those. Don't let anybody get in your way. Anybody who tells you you can't have what you want is not your friend. And then you get to your middle years and that voice sounds like, hey, you're not going to be young much longer. In fact, you're not young now. You're going to be old before you turn around. I mean, you're going to be really old. And then you're not, life's not even going to be worth anything. You, you watch your youth just draining out like sand through an hourglass. So you better grab hold of good things, things that you want while you can. You know, eat that steak while you still have teeth, right? And, and, and there's, this, there's this self-centeredness. Such a dangerous time of life. That's the stage of life I'm in now. And I hear that voice of entitlement. I recognize it. I better keep recognizing it. Because then, then you reach that post-retirement stage and that voice shifts and it becomes more a voice of anger and resentment and saying, who told these people they could change? Who told these people they could change? My country, my city, my church. Who are these people? I, I have invested. I've, I've put in my dues. How dare they change everything? I, I don't care what God says about love thy neighbor. I hate those people. And they must be stopped. And that's the voice of entitlement. It's, it's any voice that says, I deserve what I want. And if I don't get it, 
And no matter what God says, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And you see how that leads us to backsliding. So what's the answer? If those voices are inside all of us, what is the answer? I, I said earlier, this story is retold several times in scripture. Let me just real quickly refer to some of those. Deuteronomy 8, the next generation after this one, when the, those, those people die off and their children are adults, Moses is talking to them before they go into the promised land and he retells the story of Exodus 16 and 17 and he says, don't become proud. Remember who saved you. Don't think you did it yourself. In Psalm 95, David retells the story of, of the Israelites grumbling and he says, don't develop a hard heart toward God. And then in Hebrews 3, the author of Hebrews retells the story a third or fourth time. And then in verse 12, he says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So in all three, what's the, what's the common denominator? It's your heart. Backsliding starts inside of you. It's not something someone outside can do to you. It's, it's what happens in your heart. When you listen to that voice of addiction, that voice of entitlement, you become hard-hearted, you become proud. And here's the ultimate answer, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 4. We read this last week, but I want us to read it again. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. And we know when he talks about going through the sea, he's talking about the Red Sea. What does he mean when he says the rock was Christ? He's talking about the story we read today. Because what happens next, we didn't read this part. Moses comes to God and says, God, they want to stone me to death. What am I going to do? I can't give them water. And God says, you see that rock over there? This big brown rock in the middle of the desert. I want you to go over to that rock and I will stand before you which is interesting language. In the ancient world, to stand before someone was a place of inferiority. A servant stood before the king. A slave stood before his master and said, okay, what do I do next? God's saying, I will serve you. Go over there and I will stand before you. He says, then take your staff and strike the rock. They want to stone you to death with stones. You hit me instead. I'll be the rock. You hit me. And Moses did. And what flowed out of that rock is not the judgment they deserved, but the grace they didn't. What flowed out of that rock was the water that rescued their lives. They deserved death, they got life. That's the gospel. Right there in the book of Exodus, right there in the desert, that's the gospel. And that, and that, and that is the only real answer to that backsliding nature we all have. That evil, unbelieving heart that we still carry with us. It's to stand at the cross, at the place where Jesus said, you deserve to die, hit me instead. Where we deserve death and instead life flowed from it. And you see, the reason that's the answer is, if you ever really stand at the foot of the cross and look up at Jesus, you don't hear the voice of addiction anymore because your sin doesn't seem minor anymore. And you can no longer say, you know, this isn't so bad. I've got a, I've got a handle on it. And instead you look up and you go, my sin did that to him. My sin is responsible for him dying. You can't take it lightly anymore. And, and you can't hear the voice of entitlement anymore either because you're no longer saying, I deserve this and I deserve that. No, if I got what I deserved, I'd be on that cross instead of him. And we as Christians need to recognize we need the gospel every single day. 
Every day, we need to start our day at the foot of the cross, confessing our sin before God, being specific. Anybody can say, Lord, bless me for all the ways that I've, or forgive me for all the ways I've failed you. I mean, get specific. I mean, Lord, I was impatient with my kids. I said horrible things to them. Lord, I I, I haven't listened to my wife. I haven't treated her well. Lord, I, I... you know, I, I'm a jerk to people at work. I, I don't know why I am that way. Lord, I've had these evil thoughts. Lord, confess these things specifically and tell him, Lord, I don't want these. I know you'll forgive them. I'm not worried you're gonna get mad at me and cast me out of the family. That's not the way you are. I just don't wanna do something with this sin in my heart that hurts you, that hurts my family, that hurts people who know me. See, at the cross, at the cross, you get that right. So why not go to him right now And just tell him, here's what's in me that I need you to take care of. And trust his grace to be enough. Because it is. It is more than enough.